One of the reasons that we are engaging in this prayer event is that we are asking God to do something miraculous among us. We're asking God to do something in us that is beyond us and even beyond what we can imagine that we might be able to accomplish in ourselves. In maybe a little bit older language, we're asking God to bring revival. We're asking God to bring renewal. We're asking God to to put a new passion for him and for others in our hearts. And this is the whole point of why we are spending this time praying together. Because we want God to do something miraculous. But the moment you start talking about God doing these kinds of miraculous things, you wonder, how does that happen? Well, of course, it's all about what God does. It, It is not because we have manipulated God or because we have said just the right words in just the right way, and so now God is going to do something and he's sort of forced to do it. It is all about God choosing to come among his people. But at the same time, God makes it very clear that people are ready for God and people are not ready for God. And our role in what we want God to do in us as individuals and as a congregation and as a wider community of people is that we prepare ourselves for what God wants to do so that we're ready to receive and to hear and and to understand and to act. And one of the ways, I think one of the primary ways in which we prepare ourselves is through prayer. And one of the key elements of prayer that helps us prepare is confession. Now, in most evangelical churches, confession is not looked upon positively. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is because uh, at the time of the Reformation, uh, the confessional was looked at negatively. And some of the ways in which the, the confessions were handled. And so the reformers said, we don't want to have anything to do with that. So let's just get rid of the whole confession idea. And that has remained with us. The other thing is in the 19th century holiness movement, there were a lot of good things that came out of that. An emphasis upon, upon being holy people. An emphasis upon God doing more for us than you know, we might otherwise see. But one of the negative things that arose out of the holiness movement was this idea of perfectionism. That we believe that, that we, we could be perfect people. And that there became this sense of if you're not perfect, then something is wrong with you. And if you create that kind of atmosphere, then who wants to come and say, hey, I have a problem? And so you put those things together and in most evangelical churches, confession is not practiced very much. But when we read the scriptures, we see over and over again that confession is a part of God's people's existence. They confess to him. They confess to one another. It is continually a part of what God's people do. And one of those places we see it clearly here is in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah 9 comes to us in the context of Israel having been in exile for many years because of their disobedience to God. And now some of them have come back and they're beginning to reestablish Jerusalem. And they've worked on the temple and they've built the wall around the city. And in the 8th chapter, Nehemiah or Ezra gathers the people together and he begins reading from the book of the law. And when he gets done, the people say, wow, we aren't doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're not doing what God commanded us to do through Moses. And, and they begin to confess their sins. It's interesting how the word of God can get through to us. 
It's one of the reasons why reading the scriptures on a regular basis is so important. Because it reminds us of who we are and who God is and this huge gap between us. It reminds us of the commands that God has given to us and how we so fall short of those commands. That we, would, we might be able to get out of feeling that way or seeing that if we don't read the scripture. I know people who don't read the scripture for that very reason. And so they read the scripture and it leads them to confession. Now, I'm intrigued about the fact that their confession is among themselves. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their places and confessed their sins and their wickedness of their ancestors. Now, the foreigners are sent out of Israel because they are leading Israel into idolatry and away from God. And so God commands them, you need to get, get those people out from among you. Their influence is not helping you. But nevertheless, it intrigues me that he makes the point, they get rid of all of them, and then Israel comes together and confesses their sins. And there is something in that, that the confession of sins is primarily about the church confessing the sins of the church. And we have a tendency to come to God or talk among each other and to say how bad the rest of the world is, and not a whole lot about any role we might have to play in that. Now, I'm not saying that the problems of the world are, the, are all the fault of Christians. But there is, is there any sense that we haven't lived up to what God has commanded us to be and to do in this world that might make it different? Is there anything in us that needs to be confessed because we haven't been the light in the midst of the darkness that God called us to be? It's about us. And instead of saying, let's, let's lament all the things that the people outside the walls of the church do, I think we've got enough on our own hands to say, let's just confess the sins that we're struggling with. And then it changes us. And out of that, we, get, we become new light in the darkness. I suspect that some of our confession this way will be in the way we interact with the darkness, in the way we interact with the world, how we, our, our plan for trying to change the world, trying to be Christ in the world. Too often, we, we, instead of trusting God and his strategy, we look around and we see what works in the world and we embrace that strategy. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago in, in Ephesians how Paul says, you know, the strategy of God's people is not the, the same strategy as the rest of the world. Our strategy is thing, things like love, peace, patience, gentleness, mercy, truth, humility, a willingness to die to self in order to live for Christ. But we become so enamored with the way the things of the world work that we totally lost that. And we forget that Paul tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world. And the evil forces, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then once you understand that, then you can put on the armor, which is love, peace, patience. I was reading a novel recently, and in the mind of one of the world leaders involved in the conflict that's at the center of the book, the author states, it was war, and in war, the truth was almost always the first casualty. And I think there's something about that in, in, in the way, in the reason why we don't confess, in the way we hand, live in the world. We're so enamored with, with doing the, the 
purposes of God and getting people to come to Christ that we forget it's about the processes of doing that as much as it is the results. And the strategy we use is not insignificant and it's not, it's not inconsequential. It is so significant. Because if we think we can, we can badger people, if we think that we can use the, the political processes primarily and do it in the same way that other people do in order to get what we want, in order to get the, make people Christian, we've totally missed it. And we probably need to confess that. But here's the thing that I find about confession is that it is, it is effective when we do it individually, but it's also very effective when we do it corporately. And there is a place, an important place for corporate confession when we begin to see our sins as identifying with each other. We rise and fall together, and I'm not sure we all really buy into that. And we, in a little bit, we're going to... We're going to Go through a time of, of corporate confession. And there will be things, that a litany that we're going to, to confess together. And I'm sure some of the things you're going to say, I, I don't do that. I haven't had a problem with that. And, and you're probably right. But we say them all anyway because this is about not just me or you. It's about us. And the identification that we have together being the church. It's interesting to me that the Israelites in the middle of this uh, litany of confession, they talk about their ancestors who became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey God's commands. And they say, we are identifying ourselves with them. They did it, but it's us too. And there's something, something difficult about that kind of identity. We don't like to admit that maybe our people weren't quite what we wish they would be. I really don't have any idea, as you can well imagine, about all the, the things that are true or not true or did or didn't take place about what's going on at Penn State. It is, it's certainly something that we lament, the whole thing. But I, I am intrigued about when you saw the pictures of the students who were turning over vans and rioting because the Board of Trustees had fired predominantly, I think, Coach Paterno, but also the president, And part of me was mortified at that, but part of me really wasn't all that surprised. Because it's hard to admit that we're part of something that might be flawed. And whatever cover-up took place is not that hard to understand because it's hard to admit our collective sins. And we, it's so important, so often for most of us, that our reputation is more important than the painful truth. We are wired to protect ourselves. It's what we do in our sinful human nature. But I'm also intrigued by the media's response to this. And on the one hand, I'm, I'm happy, I'm certainly happy that they are bringing this, this heinous issue of, of how children can be treated to the attention of the world. But a part of me is thinking, so why now? Why haven't we been talking about this? Why have there been stories about this for a long time? Why have we ignored it for so long? And then the second thing I think about is watching and listening to people. And I've listened to people both on broadcast news networks as well as sports networks talking about this. And what I keep hearing over and over again is, well, if I were in their shoes, I wouldn't have done that. And they're probably right. They probably wouldn't have done that. But something in me is looking for, you know, that makes me stop and think 
about my own life. It makes me stop and ask myself, have I ever done anything that might have put people who are vulnerable in a difficult place? Have I ever tried to to hide things that should have been brought to the light? It's hard to admit that we are sinful people. It's hard to identify with each other, but that's what we're called to do. And that's what we're called to be as the church. And confession is one of the ways in which we're able to do that. In which we're able to say, look, your sin is my sin and my sin is your sin because we are in this thing together. And we can do that. We can come and we can honestly and openly confess our sins because we are confessing to a God who loves us Despite our sin. You'll notice that confession is tied to the love of God. And in this passage, the majority of this confession is really talking about how great God is. And how wonderful God has been to them. And it's not a matter of trying to manipulate God into, into forgiving them. But, it, but the fact that they've created this context in the presence of God where they feel free to confess. And sometimes we're hesitant to confess our sins Because the church has given us the impression that we're not really wanting to hear that. We don't don't really want to hear. and, And instead the church gives the impression of being judgmental and critical. And we ostracize people. And the church is not really known as a place where we can come and just freely acknowledge our sins. It's a place that unfortunately tends to cause us to hide our sin and deny our sin. And to not confess our faults to each other. You ever had one of those moments when two things happen close together in time and so they, you saw a connection to them that you never would have seen if they would have happened maybe weeks or months apart? Becca Pippert tells of one of those times when she was up at uh, Harvard and she went into a graduate level psychology class and, and the students, a small group of students, they were in a circle and she said they spent a lot of the time just telling each other about all the struggles they were having in life. This person they were angry at. That situation that, that they had done something wrong. Just confessing all of these things so freely to each other. They said, she said what was interesting though is that they, they were freely confessing. But nobody really had an answer about what to do about it. The next day she went to a Christian Bible study group. And she said in this group nobody shared any problems at all. They talked a lot about God as the answer to problems. There was one thing where one, the closest thing came to a problem was one kid said, well, I, I, I've got a friend who's having some kind of issue. We ought to pray for him. And so they had lots of answers, but nobody wanted to talk about problems. And because those events happened so close together, she said it struck her as so interesting that in the first group, in the psychology class, they, they had all kinds of problems and no answers. And the Christian group had all kinds of answers and no problems. And that's what the church has, has done to us. Where we have created this atmosphere where we don't feel safe. And we give that same perspective about God. We're not sure it's safe to confess our sins. But the only reason we need to, the only reason that we will ever be free from our sin is if we confess our sins. The Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And we try to avoid telling people about the things we're struggling with and even telling God. But, it, but we need to remember two truths. One, God already knows everything about our sins. It's not as though confessing to him, he will say, oh, I didn't know that. That one took me by surprise. And the second thing is that God loves us. 
And when we come to God and confess our sins, Psalmist says he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And I think one of our issues is that we, we feel like we're standing before a judge and, he, and he's laying down the sentence to us. When actually, when we come and confess our sins to God, we're actually coming into his living room and we're climbing up into the lap of our father and we're say, whispering in his ear, hey, I really blew it. And we feel his warm embrace and we feel his sense of forgiveness. And yes, there probably will still be some consequences, but never out of a heart of retribution, but always out of a heart of reconciliation and helping us and giving us grace and strength to move forward more effectively. We confess because we confess to a God who loves us. And the desire that God has for his people is to create such a spirit of openness and love with each other that we can openly confess to each other. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why does a righteous person's prayer have power and effectiveness? Because a righteous person is someone who's confessing their sins to God and to other people. A righteous person realizes that the only way to be free from sin is to acknowledge the sin. A righteous person is more concerned with being right with God than whatever reputation they may have with other people. A righteous person is willing to risk whatever people may say or do because of their confession in order to be set free from the bondage of their unconfessed sin. And that's exactly what it is. Unconfessed sin is bondage. It is like chains around our mouths and our ears and our hands and our feet and our heart. Unconfessed sin holds us back and chains us to guilt and causes us to believe that what people think is more important than what God wants to do in our lives. If we would just open ourselves and let him. It is only in when we confess our sins that we put ourselves in a position where we can receive the blessing of God and be set free from the sin that has chained us and is holding us. There was a great moving of the Holy Spirit at Asbury College in February of 1970. God did some amazing things on that campus. Students, faculty, staff, the town of Wilmore, the surrounding communities, central Kentucky, and even really throughout the whole United States, as students went all over the place sharing about the great moving of God's spirit. Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College at that time, and I've heard him talk about different stories about that, about that time and what an amazing week and, and on that it was. One of, the, one of the evenings during that, during while that was going on, he was sitting in the back of Hughes Auditorium, which is their chapel. And he was praying and just watching as students and others were coming and they were confessing their sins and, and they were praising God for his forgiveness and they were praying together and watching all this take place. And a student came up to him and, and she said, Dr. Kinlaw, could I talk with you? He said, I, I could tell from just her tone of voice that this was something that needed to be done in private. So we went downstairs into a classroom and she sat down in a chair and, and he did and They looked at each other a few minutes and finally she said, Dr. Kinlaw, I'm a liar. He said, what do you mean you're a liar? She said, I'm a liar. I I, I lie all the time. 
I lie so much, I don't even know when I'm lying anymore. But I don't want to be a liar. I, I, I want to be free. What do I do? He said, I thought, sat there for a few moments, praying, thinking. He said, I'd never said this to anyone else before, but I looked at her and I said, why don't you think about the last person you lied to? And go to that person and confess your sin and ask them to forgive you. She said, oh, I don't think I could do that. That would kill me. He said, no, I'm pretty sure it would cure you. A couple of days later, as he was walking across campus, she came bouncing over to him, this glow on her face. She said, Dr. Kinlaw, I'm free. He said, I just talked to my 34th person. <laughs> and I'm free. I'm free. That's not just about us as individuals. That's about us. When we are willing to confess our sin, God can set us free. And we can find a joy in Christ that we were certain we never would be able to find. This morning, we're going to to pray some prayers of confession together. As I said a few moments ago, some of these things you may say, that's not me, I I haven't dealt with that. That's okay. Pray it anyway. As a sign of support to those who have struggled with it, and also just as a recognition that stuff comes to us. The the words of of the litany are in two different colors. That's just simply to help you differentiate between the prayers. So we're going to pray all of the words on the screen. And as we do, I'm praying that God will will do something in us as we confess. And maybe one of these will particularly speak to you. Let that be an opportunity for God to take the weight off your shoulders and to set you and us free. Let us pray together. We have judged one another about many elements of life. Father, forgive us. We have been stingy with grace toward each other. Father, forgive us. We have not created an atmosphere in which we feel free to come to the church to be supported. Father, forgive us. We have valued our Christian independence above our call to be connected to each other as the church. Father, forgive us. We have spoken to each other in disrespectful words in the name of academia and the pursuit of knowledge. Father, forgive us. We have put pressure on our children to measure up to unrealistic standards. Father, forgive us. We have been selfish about our own needs and subsequently ignored the needs of our children or of others who are more vulnerable than us. Father, forgive us. We have chosen rebellion against our parents and the church instead of surrendering ourselves to people who have God-given authority over us. Father, forgive us. We have acted as though the ministries that are important to us 
are more important than the ministries that are important to others. Father, forgive us. We have not acted in a loving way toward people who do not live with the same ideals, priority, and God as we do. Father, forgive us. We have been more interested in knowing about God rather than surrendering ourselves to know God. Father, forgive us. We have ignored the gift of the church in deference to our personal desires and ideals. Father, forgive us. We have continually chosen selfishness over surrender. Father, forgive us. We have lived our lives ignoring the words of Christ that we are his beloved children. Father, forgive us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit and out of the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father, you, we, are forgiven. Let us go forth to live in his grace. May God bless you this day and every day as you live in his mercy and his power and his forgiveness. Go in peace. Amen.